This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. My guests today are Jonathan Erny. He is a leader of Shepard Mullins Government Contracts and Investigations Practice, and he's a co-founder of Shepard Mullins Organizational Integrity Group. Uh, also, David Douglas, he's a former prosecutor with the United States Attorney's Office in Boston, Massachusetts, one of my favorite places, and the Department of Justice. Uh, he is currently a partner with Shepard Mullins, Government Contract and Investigation Group. He focuses primarily on white-collar criminal defense, defense of civil false claims act investigations. And we also have Chuck Kreindler. He is a former federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, where he was assistant division chief. And while a prosecutor, Chuck was among, was among other things, the director of the Southern California Defense Fraud Task Force and the director of the Healthcare Fraud Task Force. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Roger. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And from those descriptions of your various backgrounds, uh, I think people could figure out our our focus today is going to be on following the money and the uh, oversight and enforcement in the age of COVID-19 and with the uh, all the relief packages that uh, have been put through. And, you know, Congress is currently working on the next one. With that money, you know, there's obviously strings attached and oversight that comes with it. And that's going to be the focus today. So I'm going to start with David. And uh, David, the government is, uh, you know, has already uh, made mil- billions of dollars available to help individuals and businesses survive and the economic consequences of COVID-19. Can you describe generally what the government is doing to ensure the funds are spent properly? And I'm thinking about like that PPE program and that sort of thing. Certainly, Roger. And as you say, the government has learned the lesson of the importance of following the money. You know, if we look back to recent history in the wake of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the government established a special inspector general for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, affectionately known as SIGTARP. Um, But SIGTARP was specifically tasked with investigating and prosecuting fraud under that program. So the government has reprised that model, if you will, with respect to, as you said, the billions made available to help companies and individuals in the current financial, uh, current uh, health crisis and and all the financial risks and stresses that comes with that. So the Congress has created a special inspector general for pandemic relief, uh, SIGPER. And SIGPER has been given a broad mandate to investigate and pursue suspected fraud in connection connection with uh, pandemic relief funds. And its, uh, its mandate is pretty broad. It's to investigate agencies and funds expended by agencies to suspected fraud by fund recipients, really under any program established by the Treasury Department in relation to the the CARES Act. Um, But in addition to the SIGPER, um, the CARES Act also created the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, PRAC. Um, And it's really composed of the panel of agency inspectors general, and its role is to both lead and coordinate uh, efforts of agency inspectors general 
to, to examine suspected fraud with respect to coronavirus uh, financial relief. The Government Accountability Office, which is Congress's investigative arm, is also conducting oversight. It's not an enforcement agency, but it issues reports and conducts investigations. And its findings are often referred to investigative agencies, including um, the inspectors general or PRAC, in this case would be one, but the Department of Justice, uh, other enforcement agencies. Of course, the Department of Justice has broad authority to investigate any kind of fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy, range of other statutes that apply to um, financial uh, transactions and the receipt of public funds. And I'll just note, finally, perhaps, that it's interesting to me that almost every government agency with any kind of investigative authority is attempting to carve out a role in combating pandemic relief fraud. And in many ways, they're simply repackaging their traditional enforcement missions as pandemic relief measures. But what it really demonstrates is that combating pandemic relief is really good politics for an agency. It's a source of additional resources, funds, personnel. And so all enforcement agencies want to get on the pandemic relief fraud bandwagon. But so there's a range now. There's a lot of scrutiny out there. Everyone who has enforcement eyes is looking at how um, pandemic relief funds are dispersed and spent. And I, and I haven't talked about DOJ, SEC, and sort of the big enforcement agencies. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, Chuck, uh, can you just talk a little bit more about what you know those agencies are doing specifically in response to COVID-19? Uh, and also, I'm just curious, too, if you guys could, yeah, Chuck, starting with you in that question, too, is like, so does the IG that they've appointed and that we all know, Brian Miller, the former GSIG, was named and, you know, confirmed as the IG for COVID-19. That's the way I'm going to put it. Is, is he sort of serve as a traffic cop for all this? I mean, he doesn't have his own staff, does he? I mean, he has to rely on other entities. Um, Chuck? Well, first, let me talk about uh, DOJ and Attorney General Barr. I mean, he's already directed all U.S. attorneys' offices to prioritize the investigation and prosecution of COVID-related fraud schemes. And as a result, every U.S. attorney's office in the country has named the coronavirus fraud coordinator, whose job it is is to make sure that investigations are conducted and criminal cases are charged. The DOJ, and important to the group we're talking uh, to today, uh, has also established the COVID-19 Hoarding and Price Gouging Task Force. That's another group uh, that is already beginning to uh, bring cases and bring criminal cases, especially with respect to uh, price gouging. The DOJ has also established a website for public reporting of COVID-19-related fraud. So that's a lot of people, as, as David mentioned, with a, an investigations, prosecutions agenda. And companies and individuals who get caught up in such investigations will almost certainly have to deal with parallel proceedings and inquiries from multiple agencies and prosecutors. And also, I, I did want to mention before I get into uh, SIGPER and the Special Inspector General, you know, the SEC is also uh, a uh, group to, to look at here. Uh, they've already suspended trading of certain companies and have begun investigating insider trading issues. Uh, you know, given the amount of non-public information out there related to COVID-19 that's available to company insiders, um, uh, there's a real concern about insider trading and market manipulation 
fact, we've already seen members of Congress being investigated for trading on non-public information. And the SEC has created a steering committee on this, and it announced that it would be monitoring announcements in industries that have been particularly impacted by COVID-19 to identify potentially suspicious market movements. And then going to your question with respect to SIGPER and then Inspector General, yeah, he does have his own budget and staff, and he will be bringing enormous amounts of cases. And I think in a, in a later segment, we'll talk about what we've learned um, from SIGTARP and what happened after the 2008-2009 crisis. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. And Jonathan, I know one of your, I guess, favorite groups to yeah, engage with is the Inspector General's office. Can you talk a little bit about the role there, <laughs> General? Uh, in in the context of uh, COVID-19 oversight and enforcement. Uh, Chuck touched on a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And David and Chuck both touched on it a little bit, but I'm going to just back up one second to make sure all your listeners are kind of on the same playing field here. So most agencies have an inspector general, and it's it's the arm of the agency that's, well, supposed to be independent. They investigate fraud, waste, and abuse. That's their mission. Uh, Interestingly, they, as you know, Roger, they investigate agencies and contractors. Now, primarily what what we're interested here in talking about is how they investigate contractors. And I think the third thing to understand about them is, is they conduct a number of different types of investigations. So they investigate crimes, they investigate civil fraud, and they investigate administrative violations as well. So they have they have broad powers. Hey, Jonathan, right there. Why don't we, when we have yep. a break, but when we come back and pick up on talking about, you know, what, what government contractors need to be thinking about when they're dealing with COVID-19 uh, funding, you know, to support government operations that they've received under contract. Um, so when we come back, we'll, we'll continue our discussion on, the, on that particular topic. My guests today are Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas, and Chuck Kreindler from Shepherd Mullen. And we're talking about COVID-19 oversight enforcement and where things are headed, you know, once we get past our current pandemic situation and people start looking, or they're looking now, I guess, right, guys, Um, about government operations and where the money's going. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are from Shepard Mullen. Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas, and Chuck Kreindler, and we're talking about COVID-19 oversight, enforcement, following the money um, with all the stimulus out there, and how the government's going to ensure that the taxpayer's money is well spent. Um, And Jonathan, when we took the break, you were just about to talk about what government contractors need to think about and be aware of um, in the current, um, you know, context of COVID-19 and in the oversight regime that's focusing on, you know, ensuring the integrity of the funding that's been spent. Yeah. And I, in that context, I wanted to just talk a little more about the various IGs that are really in play here. David talked about SIGPER, which he described as a very uh, mellifluous, I had to look up that word, by the way, it it turns out it means pleasant to hear, but I I don't, I don't have the sort of vocabulary David has. Government acronyms, no, that's, you're exactly right. They're not, <laughs> once that word. <laughs> not, not, not mellifluous. Um, but, but 
but it's not just SIGPER that's really at play here, right? From a government contractor's perspective, the, the DOD IG, the DOD Inspector General is in play here. Uh, there's a lot of special rules that are out there relating to the Defense Production Act. Uh, the HHS IG certainly is in play because uh, <clears throat> Health and Human Services is spending a lot of money. The uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security IG is in play. And, and I think a particular favorite of your listeners, Roger, is the GSA IG. Uh, GSA has a key role in acquiring things like um, uh, disinfectants and janitorial and other critical goods and services for this. So all of those IGs come into play here, and they all have a mission. And frankly, they all want to ensure they continue to be relevant. And so none of those agencies will be sitting back and just kind of waiting. They, they are looking and they are starting their work already. Right. And that, and that leads to sort of the next logical question is, uh, how does the government typically go after companies? And I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from previous situations. And I know I was having, you know, sort of flashbacks when, you know, you, when you guys were describing the, the whole new regime that's being recreated this time, it took me back to the Recovery Act and post-financial meltdown and all the funding that went there and then uh, the oversight regime that was created. So, uh, Chuck, what what ha- what do we know and what we've learned from prior uh, stimulus programs? Yeah, so, you know, the most recent historical marker is the 2008 financial crisis. And like here, massive government spending led to uh, heightened security and uh, scrutiny and, and enforcement. Uh, and the 2008 stimulus package, which totaled about $500 billion, is peanuts compared to, to the CARES Act. I mean, we're, we're talking maybe close to 10% at this point. And as David mentioned before, similar to the CARES Act, the Special Inspector General, known as SIGTARP, was created. Importantly, SIGTARP is still active today, more than 12 years later, which is amazing. I mean, SIGPER and PRAC, the ones that were created for the CARES Act, are currently both authorized to operate until at least September 30, 2025. So more than five years from now, and that can be extended depending on what happens and almost certainly will be. Again, SIGTARP is still active. SIGTARP itself has recovered over $11 billion through its own enforcement actions and has sent hundreds of people to jail. So, you know, that's the historical marker. Now, as far as defense contractors are concerned, the biggest threat coming out of these stimulus packages and, and crises are whistleblowers. And we expect an explosion of whistleblower complaints and related subpoenas and investigations. I mean, we're talking about 30 plus million unemployed. It's Uh, with unprecedented incentive. And and we're not even talking about just uh, former employees, but third-party investigators, auditors, vendors, suppliers, payers. Almost anyone can be a whistleblower. Um, And the bounties under the False Claims Act are very large. Um, And they're easy targets for motivated Quitam Plaintiffs Council, who already are actively on the hunt uh, and eager to uh, bring these cases. They're already doing ads, uh, you know, uh, looking for whistleblowers. So that's going to be a a very large place of where the government 
you know, gets its information. And it's not necessarily just related to to CARES Act. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, no, I just I wanted to piggyback on that for a second, because a lot of your listeners will remember kind of the parallels here with the Trade Agreements Act. I I know it's it's not a it's not a CARES Act issue, but back in the early 2000s, I think it was around 2005, there weren't any False Claims Act cases related to the Trade Agreements Act. Well, one whistleblower, a competitor, not an employee, a competitor sued all the office products companies and ultimately resolved that case for about $27 million, if I recall. But what's interesting is following that whistleblower case, the GSAIG issued 200 subpoenas to every company selling office products. So I, I, just, I just wanted to add that, that to Chuck's point, you know, sometimes the, the information and the energy flows from the government to whistleblowers. Sometimes it flows from whistleblowers to the government. But everyone is, in a sense, an enforcement authority nowadays. Yeah. Well, well, on that point, you know, David, you know, talking about where the energy is coming from, what have you seen from the government so far this time around? So, yeah, we track uh, the COVID-19 related oversight and enforcement actions. Uh, We're already seeing aggressive enforcement um, by agencies. There are almost uh, 30 cases brought by the Department of Justice alone, and that does not include state and local prosecutions, obviously. Um, I, I'll just briefly mention that your listeners can find our case tracker and other enforcement-related developments uh, and information on our website. It's uh, www.smcoronavirusinsights.com. Look up Shepard Mullen Coronavirus Insights. Right. Um, but in terms of the cases that we're seeing, as you might expect, most of the initial ones are sort of garden variety fraud in which a defendant lied to obtain Paycheck Protection Act funds or other uh, COVID-19 related funds. A lot of these are individuals or small businesses, uh, physicians, small business owners. Um, But there are some corporate officers. A CEO of an IT company was prosecuted for filing fraudulent uh, Paycheck Protection Act applications. Uh, He's trying to get more than $13 million and in fact obtain more than $2 million. We're also seeing prosecutions of companies that misrepresent medical products and devices. The company was prosecuted for falsely labeling masks as as KN95 when they weren't. Uh, Four men in Miami were prosecuted for fraudulently marketing a chemical solution of bleach and water as a COVID-19 cure. So obviously this kind of conduct presents a serious threat to public health. And so it's not really surprising that the government aggressively pursues them. While these cases are important, and and, uh, they're also fairly straightforward garden variety fraud schemes, and in many ways, they're just a different riff on traditional financial and healthcare fraud. And in that respect, they're kind of low-hanging fruit, and certainly none of your listeners uh, really engage in this kind of conduct. Nevertheless, I just want to say these cases are important because we know that whenever the government begins a new enforcement initiative, it starts with the low-hanging fruit and then sort of migrates up the value chain and progresses to more complex schemes, more novel theories, and ultimately gets large employers, large corporations. We've, we've seen that certainly in healthcare over 20 years. So we know that these cases will lead to bigger ones. And, and that's why we track them so that we know what the government's looking at, the theories it's pursuing, the kind of conduct um, it's attacking. Yeah, Dave, that's a great point because, you know, and Jonathan sort of you're you're validating what Jonathan talked about when he talked about 200 subpoenas going out. You know the ripple effect of these things is, I think, what companies don't 
you know, sometimes think about. And you know what? We're already up on the break. So when we come back, I'm going to ask Jonathan to give us some specific examples of what the government is interested in when it comes to looking at government contractors in this compliance environment. Um, and my guests today are Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas, and Chuck Kreindler. They're from Shepherd Mullen. We're talking about COVID-19 oversight and enforcement, what it means for government contractors. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas, and Chuck Kreindler. They're from Shepherd Mullen. We're talking about government contracts, oversight enforcement in the COVID-19 world we're living in and what it means with, uh, you know, the CARES Act and, you know, all that money, you know, following the money and, and the oversight associated with it. And Jonathan, I think when we take the break, I mentioned that I was going to ask you about specific examples that the government may be interested in when they're taking a look at government contractors in this context. Sure. Yeah. So I've talked to a lot of different clients since this has started and industry groups and frankly, a lot of people within the government. I, uh, and I've chatted with the uh, IG auditors and agents. And, and so I, I think, I think I have, I think I have my arms around some of the key things the government's focusing on. Uh, and, and here are some of them. Uh, one, which won't surprise you at all, David and Chuck already mentioned it, is price gouging. And the government is very interested in making sure uh, companies aren't gouging that creates a number of risks. One, uh, most every state has a slightly different price gouging statute. The federal government doesn't have really a technical price gouging statute, but they come after price gouging using, using other statutes available to it. And what I, one of the risks I've seen companies face here is they, like say you're a reseller of products, you, you might not be the one gouging, but your suppliers might be gouging you which then causes you to give an inflated price to the government. And whether or not you did anything wrong, you're going to be front page news. So I think it's incumbent upon the prime contractors not only to look out for their own price gouging, but for price gouging of others in the supply chain. So what do you do in that case, Jonathan? Not do business with that company or? Oh, I I definitely have had clients where we've decided to walk away. So We've resolved this a couple of different ways. Uh, on one occasion, we just we just we didn't walk away; we ran away. Like we we were, did not want to have any association with that sort of pricing, and we just gave up the government business. On another situation, what we did is is we continued to sell the product, but we capped our profit. So if it did blow up in any way, it was very very clear that we were not making any money on the deal. So there's a number of things you can do, but frankly. If the price gouging is ob- is obvious, I would just walk away from the deal. David, yeah, go ahead. I, I did. Yes, I, I wanted to jump into the point about and return to Chuck's point about how cases get investigated. Because in the early days, the truth is government agencies will know very little about how companies set prices, what they're responding to. And the result is it tends to make them very open and receptive to whistleblowers. Because whistleblowers are typically insiders. They can give information about how the company operates, which the government just doesn't have. Over the years, the government develops that expertise and can be more of a check on relators. But in the early years, where we find ourselves today um, with respect to these programs, um, I think the government will be very 
reliant on whistleblowers. And the problem with that is for a variety of reasons, you know, whistleblowers come at it um, with a certain perspective. They, 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 they uh, view the conduct through a dirty lens, if you will. And so they give the government a biased view of what's going on. So by the time a company might be aware of an investigation, the government may have formed a strong, although inaccurate view of why a company's prices seem to have gone up rapidly. They may not know that costs have increased. They may not understand the risk factors because they weren't told that. And so it becomes incumbent upon the company to sort of explain that to the government. But they start a little bit behind because the government's already been told a different story. And that's a big risk factor in these times. Yeah. Jonathan? Yeah. So just uh, just uh, uh, while, while price seems to be one of the biggest risks out there, just a couple of other ones that are worth keeping on the radar screen. Um, one is relatedly is uh, is collusion. So the, the government has made it very clear that they're focusing on whether companies are colluding. Now, when most people think of collusion, they think of it kind of in the antitrust context. But but in federal contracting, there are a lot of normal activities that could create an appearance of collusion. Uh, the relationship between um, um, manufacturers and resellers, the relationship between prime contractors and their small business partners. So this concept of collusion should be thought about broadly from a risk perspective. And then, as, as most of your listeners know who sell products primarily is uh, there's been a lot of talk about the Defense Production Act, the, 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 the DPA, a little less so now than, than before, but the DPA brings with it a host of obligations, all of which have to be very carefully complied with. And there are obviously more than these, but um, you know, we'd, we'd have to have a whole separate show to go through all the risks, Roger. Well, then that's good. We can turn to you know, talking about um, how do you respond to those risks? Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, and you've been on the show, and David, particularly, but you guys have both been on, sh- on the show more than once in talking about ethics and compliance and risk avoidance. And Jonathan, and, and I'll let Jonathan in, and then go to David if he wants to add anything additional. But what advice would you give contractors in operating in this? You know, what I would say is, uh, you know, high risk. <laughs> Some people would, on certain sides would say target-rich environment, right? But- yes, a target-rich environment. Well, yeah, so D- David and I are both uh, the co- co-founders of the uh, Shepherd Mullen Organizational Integrity Group. So he and I talk about this stuff a lot. Uh, and I know David's going to be talking a little bit more about that organizational integrity piece. I, I just want to hit a couple of basic things I think every one of your, like every contractor should be doing right now. And, and that is the most obvious is focus on compliance now. Like, do, do not wait until the audit or the investigation comes up later. And, and when you're thinking about how to do that, it's a very simple place to start. Like, take your personal copy of the FAR off your shelf and open up to 5220313. That's the only citation I'll say on this whole radio show, I promise. But that FAR provision lists what the key elements of an internal control system are for a government contractor. So, you know, take that out and look down that list and use that as a checklist. Uh, the, the other thing I think everyone should do, D- David and I do a lot of work in the area of, um, of policing and police accountability. And, and we have a saying that we stole from one of our friends. It's a PTSD. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It means focus on policies, training, supervision, and discipline. 
And just as we use PTSD in the police context, same applies here in the government contracts context. So contractors should be doing these things now. Uh, and then the last one I'll add is always be thinking about what your situation is going to look like if you end up in front of a suspension of arm and official. Right. We, Chuck, David and I get, get questions all the time about whether X is legal or whether X is not legal. But it's a far the, the actual question is far broader than that, because something that is legal could still be tremendously risk laden. And so whenever we attack problems for clients, we we never just look at the contract terms. We never just look at the statute. We step back and look at responsibility and say, OK, how is this going to look? A, on the front page of the New York Times, and B, when sitting on the desk of a suspension of arm and official. Dave, you have anything to add to? Yes. Um, let, me, let me pick up right where Jonathan left off and actually talk about our organizational integrity group, because it was formed really to focus on just the broad risk areas um, that Jonathan ticked off. Um, first, I'll quickly say your listeners can find it at www.shepherdmullen.com forward slash OIG. Um, we like that our, the acronym for, for our organizational integrity group is Melif Lewis. Uh, it's OIG, um, but our OIG helps clients. Uh, and we help clients by looking beyond the narrow legal risk, as, as Jonathan was saying, but we look at broadly at sort of business risk, reputational risk, relationship risk or the relationship, for example, with partner regulatory agencies. And Jonathan was saying that what we recognize is, frankly, risk is risk. Um, and we want companies to consider all of these risk factors when they're considering new business opportunities or, you know, after the government comes uh, calling, if you will. Um, we, we, our website actually offers many practices and techniques. Uh, along the lines of what uh, Jonathan was pointing out. But, but I can take a moment, I'd like to describe just one of the, the more interesting ones, the more, one of the more unusual and innovative ones, if I do say so, and it's the pre-mortem. I think all your listeners are familiar with the concept of a post-mortem. That's after something goes wrong, you look back and say, what could we have done differently? Well, one of the things we do with clients, is it's a pre-mortem. And it's a situation before you undertake the transaction, accept the contract, what have you, you get together and you assume that something's gone wrong. For example, you assume you got the contract and you assume the gov there's a government investigation. And, and what the science tells us is, is just that subtle mind shift, rather than saying well, what could go wrong, put yourself in the position where it did go wrong, and then bring all the relevant stakeholders together for a tabletop exercise, to look back, if you will, back to the future, to say, so what happened here if there wasn't, an how did we find ourselves in this city situation? And then people begin throwing out ideas and, and that leads to thought. And that identifies risk factors that maybe would otherwise have been missed. And uh, we've used it successfully with clients a, a number of times when they're uh, considering undertaking new business lines or attaining a new government contract to say, okay, let's assume it all went to heck, if you will, and let's look back and see what lessons we can tease out so we can avoid being in that situation. I mean, that sounds like a great tool. It's almost like a, 
I don't know, gaming kind of thing, like you're doing, taking a hypothetical situation and applying to it. And, but we're up on the break, guys. And when we come back, uh, you know, I think the, the insights that you guys provide are invaluable. And when we come back, I want to ask Chuck about, you know, the process and the considerations and factors that go into the decision to actually go after a company or not. And it's based on Chuck's experiences in AUSA and, um, and, but, but right now we do have to take a break. Uh, I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. And my guests are Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas, and Chuck Kreidler from Shepard Mullen. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are from Shepard Mullen, Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas, and Chuck Kreindler. And uh, we're talking about been talking about COVID-19 um, and the you know, latest sort of um, environment around compliance oversight and following the money with Relief Act and the funds that have been going out and just even government contractors responding to government requirements to support, you know, pandemic response. And, you know, Chuck, you know, we, we've talked a lot throughout the show about all the various aspects of oversight. But, you know, one of the things I think would be fascinating to hear about is, you know, I, I know it's your experience as an AUSA, you know, just talking about the factors and how decisions are made between prosecuting individuals or organizations versus not, like sort of like going under the, the secret, double secret Wizard of Oz sort of screen or whatever it is, Kurt, Kurt. I don't know. <laughs> so, Chuck, take it away. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, as far as prosecutions go, uh, I think everyone needs to understand that it's it's a very rare case where a company is charged without individuals also being charged. And really, you know, since the unlawful conviction and ultimate destruction of Arthur Anderson almost 20 years ago, you know, prosecutors are directed to focus their criminal efforts and attentions on the individuals who were directly involved in wrongdoing. Um, and as we said right from the beginning, they also follow the money because at the end of the day, uh, that's, where, that's what they're going to follow. Who, who ends up with the money in their pocket? And that's who they're going to look at. So always, the government is always going to be focused criminally on, on an individual. Now, companies are now incentivized, and this is because of, a lot of this is because of what happened with Arthur Anderson. Companies are now incentivized to have strong compliance programs and also to cooperate you know, with the government in its investigations and prosecutions of not only employees, but officers and directors um, of those companies. And as a result of that, rather than being criminally prosecuted, companies are now more likely going to be subject to what we call NPAs or non-prosecution agreements. Now, just because the company isn't criminally prosecuted doesn't mean the NPA is not, you know, the NPA can still be very onerous uh, and include, you know, fines, admitting facts. Um, but most importantly, what they do is they require the company to enter into compliance and remediation commitments and potentially even include a corporate compliance monitor, which nobody wants. That's expensive, intrusive, and 
awful in every way for a company to have to go through. So how onerous, extensive, difficult, and expensive those NPAs end up being depends a lot on how the government views the company's compliance efforts prior to the wrongdoing, as well as, of course, how long the wrongdoing was going on. Um, so those are the things that the, that the prosecutors will, will be looking at, thinking about. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of, you triggered a thought with regard to, you know, the, your organizational integrity group, the OIG, and it's sort of, you know, I guess, best practices and just thoughts around what your, what your group is inviting clients with what Chuck, which I think made a great point about, you know, what of all the stuff you did before? you know, the trouble hit, you know, and looking at that, you know, your behavior over time and figuring out how severe that NPA is. Jonathan? David? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll kick it off. But f- first, let me say, though, as to Chuck's point about federal monitors, speaking as a federal monitor with David Douglas, uh, the cost is well worth it. I just want to throw that out there. Okay, Roger? <laughs> um, more, uh, more specifically to, to this point, is um, so some of the things that we focus on in our organizational integrity group, which which I think is really a different and refreshing way to think about these things, is is we, we spend a lot of time thinking about you know why and how people and companies make decisions. We spend a lot of time thinking about what drives behavior in companies because if you really want to solve the whole problem and not just a little piece of the problem or not just the current manifestation of the problem. You really have to dig deep sometimes and, and understanding like, we, we have we have a lot of fraud cases we handle where the real cause of the issue was we had an incentive system that encouraged people to do the wrong thing. So we really try to dig deep to figure out uh, kind of what's driving those behaviors. We also spend a lot of time talking about risk. So David mentioned earlier that risk is risk. And, and that's that's one of our that's one of our key mantras that business risk media risk, legal risk, ethics risk, it's all risk. But the part that a lot of people don't get is there are two components of risk. There's likelihood of the event and there's consequence of the event. And and those two things are different, but you can't consider risk without considering both of them. Uh, And then the last thing we spent, not the last thing, but for our purposes here, we spent a lot of time on is understanding the mandatory disclosure rule. When, When we're doing an investigation, now, one of the first questions we have to ask before we even get to, you know, a question about the Department of Justice or the SEC is, do we just have a basic farm mandatory disclosure obligation? D- D- David, anything, anything else to add, add to that list that I missed? I don't want to add to the list, but I want to tease out the point that both you and Chuck were kind of making, which is in this uncertain time, the money goes out. Um, it's often not clear what the right thing to do is. And we really saw that with the the Shake Shack and Harvard and the criticism they received for taking um, Paycheck Protection Act funds, right? Publicly traded company and an educational institution, billions and billion dollar endowment. Um, And what we, it's important for companies in this time to think about is that prosecutors, IGs, uh, investigators, they're like the public. They tend to think in terms of broad terms of right versus wrong. When they think something is wrong, they tend to investigate. And once they investigate, if they think it's wrong, they tend to look for a law or statute to use. And I think too often what our OIG tries to combat is that silo thinking. 
This is just legal risk. Are we within the bounds of the law? And expand the thinking to understand all the different factors that can uh, come to bear on a company and put it in a difficult um, situation. And that's why, that's why we try and look at, we say the whole problem, because if there's a public outcry, a, a prosecutor is likely to react. It's, it's good politics, frankly. Um, but those prosecutors are often themselves the public and they have the same reaction. So it's important companies in these times um, with tremendous uncertainty and not clear regulatory guidance or uh, established compliance practices to think broadly about how their conduct might be perceived by any number of the stakeholders that can influence whether there is an investigation. And if there is an investigation, as Chuck was saying, the outcome of the investigation. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I just say, because we're, we're up on the time, but I just, it seems to me the thing that really strikes me in the conversation, you guys have, all three of you made this point, is risk is risk, right? And understanding, you know, the likelihood and the consequence of it is really fundamental. And those, those examples of, you know, cert, which is certain sense, bad press for companies, even though they're, you know, technically, I guess, eligible to receive the funding on the PPE, you know, that has, that's a risk in and of itself. So, um, and it's something I think all the companies that do business period have to think about, right. At the end of the day. Um, and especially in the government contract context. And so I want to, I want to thank my guests today, Jonathan Ernie, David Douglas and Chuck Kreidler from Shepard Mullen. Um, and don't forget about their organizational integrity group at Shepard Mullen. Uh, interesting, uh, group interesting um, background materials and helpful hints that they provide through that. Uh, and so, guys, thank you for being on the show. And I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.